Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I will be discussing an investment that I recently sold and the lessons I learned from making that investment. This investment postmortem is a learning method inspired by the mental model resulting from Annie Duke, designed to improve my investing process. I hope you'll be able to learn along with me as I analyze a recent investment mistake. Before I get started, I want to make a short request. If you haven't already, please consider giving this podcast a rating and review. Simply hit pause and rate this podcast in your podcast player, whether that's the Apple Podcast app or Spotify, etc. I would really appreciate it. You can also do so after listening to the show. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience and help more people. Thank you for your support. Now let's dive right on in. This is the GameStop's stock investment postmortem episode. And I'm going to break down the episode into a few different sections. We'll begin by discussing my initial buy thesis and then discuss the result of the investment. After we discuss the investment results, I want to discuss the investment process. And this is really the meat of the episode, because what I'm trying to do is to learn from my previous investments so I continue to make better investments in the future. I'll finish up with a conclusion that rolls straight into the lessons learned that I've taken away, which involves some investment rules that I'm going to use in the future, as well as some red flags that I should be aware of in the future when I'm considering new investments. So let's get started with the initial buy thesis. So for longtime listeners of the show, you might remember episode five of the podcast was concerning an my thesis for buying GameStop stock. And I specifically talked about it being an asymmetric reward where I could potentially get high returns with low risk due to the high dividend of the stock. If you want to listen to the full buy thesis, please consider listening to episode five of this podcast where I go in depth onto why I thought that GameStop was a good investment. So besides that, I can sum it up in a few words. GameStop was paying a very high dividend when I was looking at it. At the time of episode five, it was the dividend yield was over 10%. And through my analysis, I believe that the dividend was safe and sustainable. Therefore, the thought process was that you are protected on the downside because your dividend allowed you to earn your investment return without needing any capital appreciation. And since the business was performing well enough to support the dividend, it didn't look like it was likely for the GameStop investment to turn out negatively. So 
my due diligence led me to invest in GameStop. And I was talking about in the episode how that asymmetric reward profile is the sort of thing you look for in an investment. It turns out that the investment did not perform like I thought it would. And so let's talk about the investment results. So the in the title of this podcast, I mentioned that this is a 2017 to 2019 investment. And that's because I began buying stock in GameStop in late 2017 in the fourth quarter. I made purchases in GameStop in the fourth quarter of 2017, as well as the first, second, and fourth quarters of 2018, as well as the first quarter of 2019. This meant that my holding period for each lot of stock ranged from as long as a year and a half and the earliest for the earliest purchase and four months for the most recent purchase. I sold all of my shares this past week for an average sale price of around $5.54 compared to my average purchase price of $14.24. So this represents an approximate loss of anywhere from 50 to 55% inclusive of dividends over my holding period. So I'm not going to go into too much more detail into the actual purchase prices, amounts, or anything like that for privacy reasons, and I, but I believe that the small range given maintains the integrity of the investment results that I'll be discussing. My alternative was just simply not to share the results, but I think it's valuable to look at investments in detail and really understand what goes into them so that we can all learn and become better investors. So the first thing you'll notice when you analyze my results is that it was a large negative performance. So I lost money on my investment in GameStop, which was in part mitigated by the large dividend payments that I did receive over those last 18 months. Throughout the last 18 months, GameStop continued to to deliver the dividend that my investment thesis was based on. However, this past week, management decided to eliminate the dividend for GameStop. This was the driving force by leading me to stop my investment in the company. It's important because had I not received the dividends along the way, losses would have exceeded 60%. So, but my goal with this postmortem analysis is not to focus on the results of the investment. While the results are important for the portfolio, the they can be distracting when you're trying to become a better investor. It's easy to focus on, did the investment make money or did the investment lose money? And that distracts you from whether you made good investment decisions when you chose to make the investment. And this is the mental model of resulting as outlined by Annie Duke in her book. And so if you'd like to read more about this concept of resulting and why postmortems can be helpful, I have a link to Annie Duke's book in the show notes. But what I want to do here is I want to separate the process that I used to make my GameStop investment from the results of the GameStop investment itself. And because it's a, the important way to think about it is it's possible to have a bad investment result while having a good process or a bad process. So it just because your investment result is bad doesn't mean that your process was bad. Unfortunately, as you'll see, my process had errors in it, which I hope to eliminate in future investments, which is why towards the end of the episode, if you stick around, you'll hear about my investment rules, which I'll be implementing to avoid similar mistakes in the future. So the best way that I believe to analyze the performance of my investment process is to focus on my buy thesis and my sell thesis. And the first step of that is to ask, was my buy thesis correct? 
This question should be answered regardless of my the result of my investment because it's again possible to make a profit with a bad buy thesis and it's possible to lose money with the correct one. So what I'm trying to do is make sure that my reasons for investment are accurate because accurate reasoning is the only part of your process that you can control. When you make an investment, you need to remember that you can't control whether that investment's going to make you money or lose you money. There's too much that's outside of your control. The only thing you can control is your process. So you need to judge yourself based on your process. Because if you judge yourself solely on your results, there's going to be a lot of noise that will make it harder to learn and get better. Investing is an area that doesn't provide a lot of regular feedback. It doesn't provide perfect feedback. So in order to become a better investor, you need to take time to really dig into each of your investments when you're done with them, ideally along the way, so that you can make sure to learn from them, both learn from your successes and learn from your failures. So was my buy thesis correct? And the short answer is no. However, what I want to dig into is that one of the main points of my buy thesis and break it down. So first, one quote from my buy thesis was that GameStop offers a greater than 10% dividend yield with a payout ratio of less than 50%. As long as the dividend can be paid, we'll make a good return, end quote. So the result of this is wrong. The dividend was eliminated in June 2019 after a new CEO took over. And while I couldn't have anticipated that a new CEO was going to be taking over, I should have been better about analyzing the safety of the dividend. And so I was wrong on the point that the dividend was both protected and would be sustained. And that was the central point that my buy thesis was built on, which is a key mark against my process having been right. So let's move on to the second piece because that ties into it as well. My second piece was that one of the reasons for the decline in the stock price and in part the business that was driving that was that the business is cyclical and that there would be a chance that we are at the bottom of the cycle back in 2018 when I was writing this. And the reason would be is is that the release of new game systems like the PS5 and the new Xbox could jumpstart the stock price. The result of this was also wrong because the cycle had not yet bottomed and I hadn't realized how much further the business could decline within the next year. In addition, the dividend was eliminated before the new game systems could be released in 2020, which would have which meant that it was did not matter whether the business improved by 2020 because the business had deteriorated sufficiently to force the dividend cut before that part of the thesis worked right. So I think it is worth trying to outline where exactly I went wrong. And it's not simply useful to know that I made a mistake. So now we know I made a mistake because the two central points my thesis was built on were ended up being wrong. But what I want to do is get to the underlying drivers of my mistake. So now I want to talk about the root cause of this investment mistake. So my entire investment thesis was built upon GameStop's high dividend yield. That meant that when the dividend was eliminated, not simply cut, but eliminated, my thesis was proven wrong, which led me to exit the stock. However, dividends don't exist in a vacuum. What do I mean by this? What's important is not the fact that 
GameStop cut their dividend. What's important is why GameStop cut the dividend and what the driver was that was. You see, dividends are paid out of free cash flow. And at the time I bought GameStop, the company's free cash flow was more than double the current dividend, the then current dividend payment. Even today, I believe GameStop's free cash flow likely exceeds the approximately $155 million in dividend payments the company would have likely paid out over the next 12 months if they hadn't cut the dividend. However, that became irrelevant because of a few key oversights. You see, I believe that my failure and the root cause of my mistake comes down to the following three reasons. First and foremost, I failed to understand the operating leverage risk inherent to GameStop's retail business model. You see, as a retailer, GameStop benefits from operating leverage due to the high fixed costs. When t- and this means that when times are good and revenues are growing, GameStop will get even higher margins over time because their profitability will increase. And that means that you get a disproportionate benefit from, let's say, a 5% increase of revenues. And you're going to get more than a 5% increase in earnings when you have that 5% revenue increase. However, the alternative also becomes true. When revenues begin to drop, your high fixed costs don't change, which can destroy your free cash flow at a faster than anticipated rate. And this is what I underestimated. I underestimated how close GameStop was to the operating leverage cliff, if you will, meaning that when you fall off this cliff, free cash flow becomes starts to be decline very, very quickly. And so you could have very small changes in revenue equal very large changes in free cash flow. And as a consequence, the margin of safety, which is what value investors use to protect themselves from losses, was much lower than I originally anticipated. You could argue, in fact, that GameStop hardly had any margin of safety at all, even though when I went into the investment, I thought they did. And that's really the number one key mistake I made, because I didn't take into account how a 5% revenue decline could lead to 20 to 50% declines in free cash flow. And sure enough, that's what happened. You had GameStop report about 5% revenue declines, but their cash flow declined significantly. The second key point that led to my mistake was that I trusted management to act in shareholders' best interest, even though they didn't have skin in the game. Skin in the game is another mental model driven by Nassim Taleb, And he has a book called Skin in the Game that discusses this concept. You can also find a link to that in the show notes. And so I even wrote an open letter to the board of directors outlining what I believe the key actions were that they could take to be shareholder friendly. It turns out, though, that not only did did the board of directors not act on any of those points that I outlined, and most of the time they acted in an opposite manner which led to their management's actions being non-shareholder friendly, according to my point of view. Now, others might disagree, but I saw the actions they take harming my personal performance with the company because they weren't keeping shareholder returns at the forefront of their actions. Now, obviously, they know more 
about the ending workers of the company than I can, but when you cut a dividend and you eliminate any shareholder returns through dividends or buybacks, you're basically cutting off all the return that you provide to your investors. And so when I talk about skin in the game, what do I mean? GameStop's management does not own a large percentage of the company's stock. So that neither do they not only do they not own a large percent of the stock outstanding, but they also don't own a large percentage of their personal net worth as company stock. In addition, the GameStop management never engaged in insider buying, which would have been a sign that they would be unwilling to buy back shares in the open market. I should have seen this as a sign that management wasn't viewing the company's stock in the same way that I was. And that was a key part of my mistake. A very good sign that management considers their stock undervalued is that they will spend their own money to buy the stock. And this simply did not occur. And so it's something that you'll hear me talk about more when I get to red flags, but the lack of insider buying really should have been a sign to me that I should have done something different. And another piece here regarding sin of the game is that cutting the dividend would be less palatable to management if they were to receive more money in dividends from their personal stock holdings in the company than from their salary. Unfortunately, management avoided building or holding a large position in GameStop stock, which means that they didn't believe in it to the same degree that they were still fo- they were focused more on receiving their salary and stock options than they were about receiving dividends from the stock in the company that they owned. The next mistake that I made is that I overestimated management's willingness to reduce their fixed costs in the face of rising operating leverage. So I discussed before, retail companies benefit a lot from operating leverage, but they also get harmed from their operating leverage. And the key thing is if your revenues are declining as a company, you need to focus on reducing overhead and reducing the leverage that comes from selling general and administrative expenses, SG&A. You'll find that line on most balance on most income statements. And that's an important line for them for you to consider. And what was really the problem is that as GameStop's business started getting into trouble, not only did they not reduce overhead, they ended up increasing it. So the primary problem for their business only grew over time. And this was that GameStop had a high fixed cost structure. It was weird almost looking back, thinking about how management would discuss the profitability of their business. They would mention over and over again that individual stores were highly profitable. So even though you'd hear all the time about, oh, GameStop's being is declining as a business, Amazon's attacking it, people are buying their games digitally, Microsoft and Sony are starting games programs. All of that didn't seem to matter because management would repeatedly tout the fact that their individual stores were profitable. In fact, on multiple earnings calls, management would report that 99% of their stores were profitable at the store level. But that statement at the store level should have been a red flag because what it meant is that the primary reason for the free cash flow declines was not the fact that GameStop as a store was unprofitable, but that GameStop as a corporate entity was having profit problems. And that was driven largely because they didn't cut back on expenses at the corporate level. 
GameStop likely would have worked out as a much better investment if management had actually reduced their corporate level expenses as revenues declined. This way, they could have maintained their profit or increased their profitability over time as the business got smaller. And of course, the only way to solve that problem is to reduce these expenses, but I overestimated management's willingness to take this action. I believe this was in large part because, again, management lacked the skin in the game that I would be seeking. So that's my basic analysis on how my buy thesis worked out. And and really, it's to say that my buy thesis was wrong in multiple ways. And I think I've identified a lot of the key failings in that thesis. But it leads me to my sell thesis. And I think my sell thesis was correct because a key rule in value investing is to sell a stock when your buy thesis is proven wrong. So this week, my buy thesis was proven wrong. And I believe it would have been speculative to continue owning shares in GameStop when I no longer had a clear understanding of what the future held. I had been proven wrong in the past and was no longer confident that GameStop's management was looking out for the best interest of shareholders, namely myself. Therefore, I felt only think that my buy thesis was wrong and the thinking went into it. Meanwhile, I believe that my sell thesis was the right decision. And I think that will, and I want to hold that opinion even if stock prices rise in the future, because the key point is is that I can't predict the short-term fluctuations of the stock price, and I'm not analyzing stocks. What I'm doing is analyzing businesses, and my business analysis of GameStop was what was wrong. The fact that the stock price fluctuates only changes the result. It's not a key impact on my process. And so continuing to hold GameStop would have been not worth the capital risk or, and this is important too, the emotional distraction of owning a company that you no longer believe in. But what I want to reiterate here is that I did not sell GameStop simply because they eliminated the dividend. A common criticism of dividend growth investors is that they tend to sell companies when dividends are cut. It's a simple rule that many dividend growth investors use. And I anticipate that some might criticize my decision to sell GameStop on the same grounds. However, I did not sell GameStop simply because of a personal rule to sell companies that cut dividends. On the contrary, I believe dividend cuts often offer the opportunity to buy good companies at a cheap price. The problem here is that GameStop is not a high-quality company. The dividend elimination by GameStop is not clearly due to free cash flow having dropped below the expected dividend cost. Instead, management cut the dividend simply to retain cash for future capital allocation decisions. Unfortunately, this is the action that highlights that management doesn't have the same skin in the game. GameStop's a company that's beset on all sides with competition. Many investors, including myself, recognize that. However, free cash flow still has value. As long as it's regularly distributed to shareholders or they're able to profitably invest it. The problem is, is I think that GameStop's going to struggle to profitably invest their free cash flow, which is one of the reasons that I invested because I thought they would simply return it to me as dividends. So you see, they have struggled to profitably invest their cash flow over the last decade. Of course, management ought to do what they can to avoid a future where GameStop doesn't exist but they should only act when they can make changes that increase future cash flow paid out to shareholders. 
cutting and eliminating a dividend confirmed to me that GameStop wasn't a pr- management was not approaching GameStop the same way I would, and that made them unpredictable to me. So in conclusion on analyzing my investment, I believe my investment in, from, in GameStop was a failure because my purchase process involved mistakes built around an inaccurate buy thesis. So unfortunately, my failed process led to the negative financial result. My successful sell process merely limited potential greater financial losses and emotional stress. In the end, I lost approximately 50 to 55% of my principal investment in GameStop stock, but many other results were possible. So I'm trying to remember that I very well might have ended up with a more or less favorable financial outcome, which is why I'm sitting down to discuss this investment and look at the process. And that brings me to my lessons learned. My investment in GameStop involved involved multiple process failures that I want to avoid in the future. But most importantly, what I want to avoid is losing money in the future. And so I need to eliminate those process failures in order to improve my investing performance. I believe that if I implement proper investment rules that guide my future investments, I can change my future investing performance for the better. Proper investment rules should eliminate or significantly reduce the probability of future failed investment processes due to similar reasons. So I have come up with four investment rules that I'm going to implement in order to prevent a similar investment performance from having in the future. In addition, I've come up with two red flags that are going to key me off to potential risks in the future. The first investment rule that I'm going to implement is to never buy a retail company with declining revenue. You see, investing in GameStop stock has taught me many lessons, but none more so than the risk of leverage. GameStop had leverage from debt, operating leases, and large SG&A fixed costs. I had adequately accounted for the debt in my analysis. I thought I accounted for their operating leases well but I failed to fully account for the large SG&A fixed costs. You see, retail is hard. Retail companies are leveraged in more ways than might first be seen on the surface. Most importantly, it's difficult to accurately understand your margin of safety when investing in a retail company. And margin of safety is absolutely important to positive financial success on your investments. It only takes a small decline in revenues to quickly erode an owner's earnings and free cash flow in a retail company. Therefore, I believe it is best for my personal investments to simply avoid investing in any retail companies with declining revenues or turnaround situations in the future. And that's my first investment rule. My second investment rule is to never buy a physical retail company with debt on its balance sheet if that debt if they also have if they also lease their locations you see this investment rule follows naturally from the first one you see it's again talking about leverage all physical retail companies will have large fixed costs that create their operating leverage this leverage is going to exist whether they choose to own their locations or lease them however debt creates additional leverage on top of the operating leverage from the company, which will increase the risk to shareholders of losing their principal. 
So the only area where I can see this as acceptable is if the debt is used to replace operating leases with mortgages. When used in this manner, it is possible that the use of debt actually lowers the risk to the business by eliminating external landlords from the equation. This is very similar to if you were to change from renting an apartment to buying a house. In some ways, you can potentially reduce your overall risk in terms of rising costs in the future. Of course, there's always caveats and there's always potential other things that come up for owning your land or owning your stores. But that's the only way that I want reason for which I want to see a physical retail company having debt on its balance sheet in the future. There are certainly many other investments available by making this rule. It's just eliminating potential trap areas that I might follow into in the future. My third investment rule isn't a rule that I think would have prevented me from getting into trouble on this investment, but I think it is one that I used on this investment that I want to continue using in the future. And my investment rule number three is do not hold onto a stock once you know your investment's thesis is wrong. Namely, you should sell your stock as soon as you know that you've made a mistake with your investment thesis. You see, investing is inherently a game of taking action under uncertain conditions. We must always come up with a buy thesis of how we expect the future to play out. And if the reason that you bought a stock no longer exists, you also shouldn't continue to own that stock. So in this sense, it's common sense. You see, this investment rule is simply an application of the mental model, zero-based thinking. And this is similar, this is used a lot in business in terms of zero-based budgeting, where every year you start over with the budget starting at zero, and you have to justify all of your expenses. And this is used at multiple companies in order to be more efficient and effective. While this rule wouldn't have saved me from my losses in GameStop stock, I certainly used it to time my exit. Therefore, Unfortunately, I would have limited my losses significantly if I'd acted as soon as I began to think that my thesis was probably wrong. And that's a lesson for me to remember. If possible, act quickly before the market fully catches on to your change in investment thesis. Investment rule number four is a little different than the first three. The first three were very hard rules that are something that would stick to and you want to stick to no matter what. The fourth rule is a little bit more of a soft rule, and it's more of a guidance on where I want to invest in the future and less of a prescription of where I'm not going to invest. And investment rule number four is prioritize investing in companies where management has skin in the game. You see, management does not need to have skin in the game to make a stock a good investment, but it certainly helps. Skin in the game goes well beyond simple incentives because stock options do not create skin in the game. What I want to look for in management is management that has a large percentage of their net worth invested in company stock. A positive sign is when management earns more from annual dividends than their company salary. It's not often that you see this, which is why it would be a key indicator that management is invested well alongside fellow investors. The importance of this rule is highlighted when you want management to take shareholder-friendly actions. This likelihood is increased when the management is invested alongside you. Owning companies where the founder is still the current CEO is even better because they are likely to own a considerable portion of their stock. GameStop is a company that lacked management with skin in the game. 
Consequently, they took actions that I don't believe a comparable management team with skin in the game would have taken. Seem to level discusses this mental model in depth in his book, as I mentioned. You can find that link in the show notes. So that completes the four investment rules that I've established after making my GameStop investment. I think they will be helpful to me in the future, and I'm going to have a link in the show notes where you can find a link to my new investment rules page on my website. I'm just starting this page, but I'm going to, over time, put all the investment rules that I plan to follow onto this page and keep it as a source for others. So now let me dive into two red flags. Red flags are something that when you see it in an investment should be an indicator that this not everything is as it seems or you should potentially move on to other investments. Red flags don't eliminate an investment completely on their own, but they're simply a data point that can be important for your consideration. The first red flag is when you see a combination of a large stock price decline without any insider buying or stock buybacks. You see, I was first attracted to investing in GameStop stock after the price had fallen over forty or over 60% from its all-time high. The dividend yield was high, and my review of the company led me to think it was undervalued. However, management never validated this thesis by buying shares of the stock, either with their own money or the company's money. This should have been a red flag. I don't think I should totally eliminate the consideration of purchasing companies without insider buying or stock buybacks. However, if my initial interest is due to large stock price declines, I should want to see my valuation of the company validated by management action when possible. This leads me to red flag number two. And red flag number two is, is I think, really important because a lot of value investors aren't going to think about it this way. And red flag number two is that non-investors you talk to think the company will be a bad investment. So I'm sure that some value investors are going to read this red flag and scoff because isn't the point of value investing to own stock in companies disliked by the market? Sure, absolutely. But that's not what I'm talking about. You see, my focus is on the wisdom of non-investors. The market can tell you a lot about the wisdom of other investors, other people that are looking at stocks, other people valuing stocks, people looking at momentum, people looking at trading, technicals, all of that. But what I'm focusing on is, again, non-investors. And what GameStop has taught me is to listen carefully to the wisdom of those who don't spend a lot of time thinking about investing. Whenever I would discuss GameStop stock as an investment with my friends and family, there was almost universal disdain for the future prospects of the business. And in large part, I agreed with them. Their objections made sense to me. I knew about their objections. Yet, I still invested in GameStop because their cash flows were so high and I trusted management to properly allocate them. And by allocate them, I mean giving me dividend payments. And I do think it's important for every investor to always do their own due diligence and research. That's why you see so many disclaimers on my website and in, the, and in this podcast about do your own research before making investments because I don't provide investment advice. See, you cannot outsource conviction in your investments. But I think you should also carefully listen to the wisdom of crowds. There's always... there's almost always a grain of truth that can help you improve your investment process if you just listen to those that are giving you a differential insight. 
And that's the basis behind my second red flag. So I hope this investment post modem has been helpful to you. What I'm really trying to do is to improve my own investment process. And so if this is helpful to you, please let me know. You know, make a comment um, on the website or send me an email or make a, you know, comment in the review and ratings for this podcast to just say that that what I talk about is helpful because that would be really useful feedback for me. But what I'm trying to do is learn to be a better investor, and I hope you'll join me in that journey. Please consider subscribing to the podcast, and then you'll hear more of my episodes as I release them in the future. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 30. And finally, remember, this is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at DIYinvesting.org slash patron. Your financial support is what allows me to continue creating this free investment content without any advertisements. If you choose to become a patron of the show, you'll receive exclusive insights into my personal investing process through the DIYinvesting.org membership program. Once again, you can find out more information at DIYinvesting.org slash patron or listen to episode 11 of this podcast where I go into detail about the benefits of being a DIY investing member. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.